0: how do you react to people who make life difficult for you? That's one of the biggest questions I could ask you this morning, because you see, our reactions tell us a whole lot more about where we are in our walk with the Lord than our actions. We can plot and plan our actions, but our reactions just come forth from our heart, and they reveal where we really are in our walk. Now, we all come across people that uh, are hard to live with, and so I guess you could rephrase this question almost. How do you treat the jerks in your life? And let's face it, we all do. Some of them are going to have them gathered around the table with you pretty soon at Thanksgiving. They'll even be family members. Uh, So, uh, We've, uh, Jesus has been addressing this sort of thing. He's not talking about, uh, enemies and evil people over on the other side of the ocean. He's talking about the people that you run across every day. The people that you encounter personally, face to face, uh, in the day. Remember, he told us not to resist an evil person. Don't try to get even. Uh, turn the other cheek. He taught his followers that they should respond differently than the world and uh, counter their own carnal instincts at times like this. And you have to admit that the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount are impossible to keep unless we're energized by the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Chuck Swindoll, in his book, Simple Faith, said, In my opinion, Jesus' words recorded in Matthew 38 through 48 are among the most unusual he ever uttered. The strange-sounding advice not only cuts cross-grain against our human nature, it also represents the antithesis of the advice most Americans are given. Nevertheless, his words are wise and his way is right, if we will only give them a chance, we will discover how true, and yes, once again, how simple his advice really is. Jesus previously uh, mentioned four different enemies, hasn't he? An evil person who who humiliates you. Remember he said to uh, turn the other cheek that uh, the backhanded slap was a major insult, and the purpose of it was to either pull you into a fight, which would make you look bad, or to uh, humiliate you. And so by turning the other cheek, all of a sudden, you wind up in control of the situation. You're not cowing down. You're not uh, giving in in any way. The other person has time to think about, about what they're going to do next. And as we mentioned last week, by this time, other people are watching and their actions are going to be, uh, what be recorded for by everybody. People are going to see what happened. If you'll recall, you know, lots of times somebody will hit you and Ian, you might even know about this, you know, probably happened to you in school sometime. Somebody hits you you hit them back, the teacher, nobody saw the first hit that took place. All these saw, they see is the, the kid hitting the other person back. And so the other kid gets the, the kid that was the victim to begin with by getting pulled into the fray winds up being the one that gets in trouble. That's just the way things work. But if you this turn in the other cheek thing, turns that around. Uh, the person who sues you the authoritarian person who makes uh, demands on you. And then he talks about the enemy who persecutes you. And, uh, you, there's some people that, uh, are around you that are just mean to you, you know, and then there are others that will pursue you. They will try to find ways to hurt you and they get very creative in the things that they do. And, uh, I it's interesting that the word persecute uh, in the Greek also it, it has the connotation of pursuing someone in order to get them and so persecute you see has this idea of somebody coming after you more or less to do you harm and so uh, an enemy who persecutes you you have heard that it was said love your neighbor and hate your enemy but I tell you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And notice this, what Jesus says after this. This is so important. First of all, he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. The sun that rises and shines on you is the same one that rises on Whatever politician it is that you think the least of, and don't no no names, okay. But the the Lord treats you the same, okay. Uh, he causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He doesn't pick favorites when it comes to the sun and the rain. It it rains in your yard just like it rains in the And the the person that maybe you're having a conflict with, he reigns in their yard too. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And this is important. That Listen to who's saying this. If you love those who love you, what reward do you get? If there's anybody that loved people that did not love him, it was Jesus. It was Jesus. He loved people that were there listening right then just to take notes to see how they could do him in. And he loved them. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? It says that he went to the cross for the joy set before him. What was the reward that he was going to get? Just think about that. First of all, he's going to be reunited with his heavenly father. But then even more than that, he was going to have fellowship with so many people through eternity that he loved and wanted to be with, and you were in that number. He, You see, he practiced what he preached, and he didn't expect any more of himself or of you that he acted out in his own life. He says, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, that's not talking about just your flesh and blood brothers. That's talking about those that you have common uh, connections with we are only your brothers. What are you doing other more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Now this, listen to this, Jesus is telling us this is what we're supposed to do. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now do you think that he's telling us to do something that we cannot do? This is a command. In fact, It can, and it should be translated, you shall be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now then, God does not command us to do anything that cannot be done. Some things are a matter of the will, and they can be done. But uh, again, we're looking at this in context, and the context is what's just gone on before. Where does God send the rain? He sends the rain on those that are evil, or on those that are righteous, and those that are unrighteous. Where's the sunshine? On those that are uh, evil and those that are good. And uh, you could look on this as uh, saying that, uh, that he is impartial. But see, you can be impartial and be cold, can't you? You can be cold-hearted and be impartial. And so what we see is, is that we're supposed to treat everybody the same. We're supposed to treat both bad guys and good guys the same in some shape, form, or fashion. And what he's talking about, uh, the word perfect also has the connotation of maturity. And stop and think about it. Immature people are, say, say somebody that's pre-adolescent, many times they'll play favorites, won't they? They'll have their little group, and everybody else in another group. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, that's being immature. A mature person doesn't do that. And so, and so the connotation here on being perfect has to do with being perfected in the way that we look at other people, the way that we treat other people, and it's something that we are all moving on toward. And this is this was one of John Wesley's biggest contributions to Christian theology was the concept of perfection, of moving on to perfection. Whenever uh, uh, we were, where I was ordained an elder, I was asked a series of questions, and one of those questions is, "Are you moving on to perfection?" And we were supposed to answer positively. And the second question was, do you expect to be made perfect in this life? And the answer to that question was supposed to also be in the affirmative. And this is a que- these two questions are at the heart of what distinguishes Methodists from other people. Because every one of you as Methodists should be saying, yes, I am moving on to perfection. And I hope to be perfected in this life. Now does that, that, what that does not mean is I'm going to get to the point where I never make a mistake. It doesn't mean I'm going to get to the point to where, uh, I just, I I am just totally right in my theology and the way I look at everything. What it has to do is with how we relate to other people. And the, I've got to give you another historical aside here. There, when John Wesley first started preaching this and the societies would get together and uh, he got together with the others that he uh, shared his faith with, they determined that there was at least one person that they had come across that had reached the, uh, the state of perfection. And that's being a state of, be, of being perfect in their love of God and their love of their fellow human beings. You remember the great command is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then he said, the second one is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You can't love God without loving the people around you. They go together. Well, they thought that one person had, uh, had achieved perfection in their love of God and other people. And then later on, they wrote into uh, the records of their, of the, of early Methodism. They changed their mind. They began to wonder if uh, apparently that person must have ticked somebody off or something. You they did something wrong because they came back and decided maybe you couldn't be made perfect and you know, totally reach perfection, but it's something that we're always moving toward. And uh, the thing is, this is just it. The whole idea of spiritual growth is tied into this. And all of us are supposed to be growing in our relationship with the Lord. As we grow in our relationship with the Lord, He's going to show us different things, flaws in the way that we handle our relationships. He's going to all of a sudden pull back the cover and let us see uh, that our heart's not right in certain areas. We're always going to be growing. There's never a, a time whenever we're going to be uh totally perfect, probably. But that doesn't mean that we're not moving toward that. And uh, the thing is, is that, uh, well, I guess the best example I've ever seen this, and some of you heard, have heard this before, I heard a guy talk about a, a uh, an African missionary who was out in the boonie somewhere, and he ran across an old African goldsmith who was smelting gold under a tree. He had a charcoal fire there, and he had a cauldron there, and a bellows. He'd pump up the bellows, and the the molten gold would bubble, and dross would form on the top. And he'd take a ladle, and he would scoop the dross off and cast it aside. Then he'd pump up the fire again. More dross would come up. He'd scoop it off. The missionary walked over to the old goldsmith, and he asked him, What are you doing? He said, I'm purifying this gold. And the missionary saw no essay equipment or anything like that around. He said, now, how are you going to know when this gold is pure? And he said, when I can see my image clearly in it. That's what our walk with the Lord supposed to be like, isn't it? Where he is seen more and more clearly in us every day that we walk with him. And as that happens our relationships and how we handle other people uh, wind up being different. Now, even the best of Christians are going to have some enemies. Jesus told us to beware when all people spoke well of us. Galatians 5.11 tells us the gospel is going to offend some people, but not all of our enemies are because of the gospel. Some of our enemies because people can just be mean, you know, uh, in Romans twelve eighteen, Paul tells us, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But some people are just going to be nasty and hateful, and there's not much you can do about that, but be a good servant of Christ and pray for them. Your instinct may tell you that you should lash out and do to others before they do to you. You know, How does that go? Do unto others as they would do unto you, only do it first. Isn't that the way it were? That's that the, what the Americans are really taught, you know? Uh, but we are to be different. And it says, Paul goes on and says, On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then he concludes, do not be overcome by evil. Don't get pulled down to their level. Don't get sucked into that trap. They may not realize that they're sucking you into a trap, but Satan does, and he's using them as a tool to pull you down and away from your walk with the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, that's being perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. If an enemy refuses to speak to you, you smile and speak to them anyway. If an enemy says hurtful things about you behind your back, you be positive in return. If someone tries to hurt your reputation, you respond with kindness. If they try to undermine your business or your welfare, you find some way to help them. Now this may be sounding really strange to you, and you may have never really tried this, but you're looking at somebody that has. I have lived through this big time, many times. You know, uh, being a pastor, everybody thinks that the, some people get so disillusioned because they, whenever they, uh, I've had so many church secretaries come to work, uh, for the first time in a church setting and they get just so hurt because not everybody in the church is nice and it's and they, they just they thought that everybody in church just walked around and was nice to each other and they chew them out because they didn't get the bulletin right or they didn't stick that donation in exactly the right place it was supposed to be and they'd be so ugly to my secretary every little typo you know there's I think it's too many typos let's face it but uh, I mean, phew. I had one, her attitude toward typos was everybody makes mistakes, you know, and she'd have 15 in every bulletin. You know, that's not what you're going for, but uh, everybody is going to make mistakes. But uh, the thing is, is that uh, you can find people that hurt people in church. And I'm supposed to be the pastor to all of them, whether it's I, uh, you know, the, I, I like the shepherding concept because you see, sometimes if you've ever dealt with sheep, sometimes sheep bite sheep and sometimes sheep will bite the shepherd, you know, but they're still your sheep, aren't they? And you still tend to them, don't you? And that's the point that I've had to get to, to where they're the Lord's sheep. I'm just a shepherd that's in charge. He's put me in charge of a flock and whether they bite me or not, I'm going to love them. So if you bite me, I'm still going to love you. Just want you to know that, okay? Uh, but uh, anyway, so I have experienced this on scales that you would never imagine. Uh, but uh, I have discovered that uh, if you try it the Lord's way, things are going to go the way that they should. The main reason that we're supposed to live this way is because the Lord told us to. And when you live your life the way the Lord told you to, he's going to help you. He's going to empower you. He's going to be with you. And you'll be amazed at the miracles that can take place. I remember one, there were two guys that were unhappy with me, and they set out to destroy me, my ministry, uh, to poison my ministry in the congregation. And they spread lies. They spread. They spread rumors. They uh, got you know just all sorts of stuff. And uh, I just kept on loving them and kept on loving them. And I prayed for them. You know, we're told to pray for our enemies, and these guys were enemies for my gospel's sake, or for the gospel's sake. And the thing is, everybody, everybody knew these two, and they knew how mean they were. They weren't just mean in church. They were mean at the Lions Club. They were mean everywhere they were. Everybody knew these people, but nobody, they were bullies and nobody would ever stand up to them. And there was, they were taking the church away from the congregation. And so I had to just uh, uh, stand, I wasn't, it wasn't ugly or anything, but just in making sure that the church was the church. And not just what these two people decided that it should be. It wasn't just their playground. Well, they decided they were going to get rid of me in some shape, form, or fashion. And I just kept loving them. If I'd gotten pulled into the fray, if I'd badmouthed them, it was just giving people another bad image of preachers, wouldn't it? But as people knew what these people were like, and as they did what they did to me, and they saw me not responding in kind, they began to look at themselves and they began to see, hey, maybe this stuff works. I kept on loving them and praying for them. One of them developed cancer. I kept pastoring to him, pastoring him, loving him. would visit him in the hospital. And then finally, I remember going to visit him at home. And he told me how sorry he was that he loved me. And we hugged each other goodbye. Went back to see him again. He said, you know, I don't have long for this life now. And I don't know how soon it's going to be, but I just want you to know, I want you to preach my funeral. This is a guy that was out to destroy me, but I loved him in spite of himself. About three weeks later, I was preaching his funeral. A person that could, that could have died with animosity between me and him, instead wound up being one of my best friends again. And that's what can happen. You know, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Said something to the effect that the best way to uh, uh, defeat an enemy is to turn him into a friend, and that's so true. And Jesus knew that. Um, I just I uh, want to. There's a story about feeding your enemy that uh, uh, kind of makes this as well. There was a mom that shared this about uh, whenever they were a new Christian family. The woman uh, said that during one of their Bible readings as new Christians, they ran across the verse, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. That's in Romans twelve twenty. And the woman continued, our sons, seven and 10 at the time, were especially puzzled. Why should you feed your enemy? They wondered. My husband and I wondered too, but the only answer John could think of to give the boys was we're supposed to do it because God says so. It never occurred to us that we would soon learn why. Day after day, John Jr. came home from school complaining about a classmate who sat behind him in fifth grade. Bob keeps jabbing me when Miss Smith isn't looking. One of these days when we're out on the playground, I'm going to jab him back. And the mom said, I was ready to go down to the school and jab Bob myself. Obviously, the boy was a brat. Besides, why wasn't Miss Smith doing a better job with her kids? I'd better give her an oral jab at the same time. I was still fuming over this injustice to John Jr. when his seven-year-old brother spoke up. Maybe he should feed his enemy. Then all three of us were startled. None of us were sure about this enemy business. It didn't seem that an enemy would be in the fifth grade. An enemy was someone who was way off. Well, somewhere, we all looked at John since he was the head of the family. He should come up with a solution. But the only answer he could offer was the same one he'd given before. I guess we should because God said so. Well, I asked John Jr., do you know what Bob likes to eat? If you're going to feed him, you may as well give him something he likes, jelly beans, He almost almost shouted. Bob just loves jelly beans, so we bought a bag of jelly beans for him to take to school the next day, and decided that the next time Bob jabbed John Junior, John Junior was simply to turn around and deposit the bag on his enemy's desk. We would see whether or not his enemy, this enemy feeding stuff, worked. The next afternoon, the boys rushed home from school, and John Jr. called ahead. It worked, Mom! It worked! I wanted details. What did Bob do? What did he say? He was so surprised, he didn't say anything. He just took the jelly beans. But he didn't jab me the rest of the day. In time, John Jr. and Bob became the best of friends, all because of a little bag of jelly beans. Both of our sons subsequently became missionaries on foreign fields. Their way of showing friendship with an enemy, with, with any enemies of the faith, was to invite the inhabitants of those countries into their own homes to share food, uh, to share food around them and around their own tables. I guess we could say that enemies are always hungry. Maybe that's why God said to feed them. Well, I can attest. Whatever you do what the Lord says to do in these situations, it works. Try it. You'll ultimately like it. You might not in the beginning, but try it. I can also remember a time whenever I was a kid about Ian's age. This is my grandson over here, by the way, Ian. And uh, I had an enemy in my class. He was uh, uh, always picking on me. And, uh, trying to start fights. And if, uh, if I had any, made any sort of accomplishment, he was always putting me down or trying to. And in Sunday school, I heard this story, heard about how we were supposed to love our enemies and pray for them. So I was a little kid and didn't know any better. And so I started praying for this guy. The interesting thing is that the more I prayed, every night I'd lay there in bed and I'd pray for this guy. And after a while, the Lord just kind of helped me to start seeing what was going on in this guy's life. This little kid needed attention. He craved accolades. And what was happening was whenever I accomplished something and I got the attention, he had to some way take attention away from me. It's like there wasn't enough to go around. And so I began to see what the Lord wanted me to do for this guy. And so anytime he did something good or outstanding or something, I, man, I was the first one to brag on him. I was the first one to say, way to go. So-and-so. And uh, did y'all see what he just did? And you know, he became one of my best friends. Sharon and I double dated with him whenever uh, we were in high school. He became one of my best buds. again, Whenever you do things the way that the Lord says to do them, I've discovered that one of two things are going to happen. Either they're going to become good friends, or in some way, they'll be taken out of your life. In some way, something's going to happen. Those things are not going to stay the same. And so uh, I, I want to encourage you to start trying things God's way. He's already Given us the example about how to love those and do good for those who persecute you and spitefully use you. He's done it for you. Just think every time you sin, every time you go against what you know God wants in your life, you're his enemy. You're slighting him and you're hurting him. And he knew you were going to do it. He knew that you were going to separate yourself from him by your sin and he just couldn't handle it. He had to do something about it. And so for the one that was his enemy, you, he went and paid the price that was going to keep you from going to heaven so that the door of heaven would be open to you. It wasn't just that he forgave you. He ransomed you, his life for yours. Let's pray. Oh Lord, forgive us when we take your words so lightly and think that they don't apply today. When they apply today in a greater way than they ever could and than we could ever possibly imagine. Oh Lord, you loved us while we were unlovable and unlovely. You reached out to us whenever we were spitefully using you. Forgive us, we pray, and forgive us if we have uh offended you by not treating other people the way that you would have us treat them and help us to start living the way you'd have us live. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.